This is a Media Lab podcast. Can you believe that we're not alone in the universe, Dave? We did find out that there are single-celled hexagonal organisms that are potentially going to turn our blood to dust. That's something. That is something. Uh, I, I was more talking about the fact that we just stopped at Space 7-Eleven. Not a sponsor, oh, yeah. not a sponsor. But uh, we can't just keep traveling up the speed of light consistently and constantly. So stopping for fuel every so often is great. And look at this. We have this like space snacks. I can't wait to try <laughs> their Lay's Classique potato chips. Also not a sponsor. There's nobody around. There's a lot of cobwebs. Yeah. Should we just, we also should we just take it? We also didn't should we just pay take- for this. So let's go. Let's we probably should go as quickly as possible. If we drive through the window right now, <laughs> nobody's going to notice. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm David. I was just going to try to do a Charlton Heston uh, impersonation, but I can't. And I'm the machine. Do you know that Charlton isn't even his real name? I know. I wrote some stuff. Was it John David? I can't remember. It's something. He's very mysterious. There's a lot of weird things about his life. Yeah. Well, let's get to him. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film, The Omega Man. There is no phone ringing, damn it! The last man on Earth lives in a fortress. What day is it anyway? Monday? The hell it is, it's Sunday. Sunday, I always dress for dinner. Discovered check. How does that grab you, Caesar? The last man on Earth always carries an automatic weapon. The last man on Earth is hunting. Big thanks to our patrons, Green Girl YYC and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Thank you to those Ooh. two sponsors holding it down. I think this is where we need to start here, Dave. First off, just to let the cat out of the bag, are you familiar with the source material for this movie we're about to talk about? No. Okay. So this is based on the novel I Am Legend. So have you seen any of the three Wasn't movies a, based on I Am Smith Legend? Movie? Yes. Yes. So have you oh. seen the movie I Am Legend starring Will Smith? I'm not sure. I really? do know there's a dog in it. There is, yes. And uh, and Morgan Freeman's in it? Absolutely, there is not. There is no Morgan oh, Freeman. I'm thinking of uh, the Tom Cruise movie, Oblivion. Oblivion. Was I was going to say, like, what Tom yeah. Cruise movie? Well, he was in that movie where he's all by himself, too. That is true. It? That is true. Huh. So you have no familiarity with this story whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, no. I am tangentially familiar with the book. Ooh, uh, I have... Li- this is so embarrassing. I have that book on my bookshelf. Have not, oh. have never read it. Literally, have never read Why? it. Why? Because it's super influential. We'll get into that too. Like how influential okay. that book has turned out to be. I had actually bought it to read before I went and saw the 2007 film I Am Legend, and then just never got oh, around no. to it. And then, uh, fun fact is one of the weirdest double bills I've ever gotten to. Because that was back when sometimes I would just go and watch two movies in a day at the theater. Remember theaters, Dave? And no. uh, I watched enchanted sorry amy adams and then watched i am legend right afterwards it was a very weird viewing experience that day what was your what was your mind like after you left the theater it must have been very confused very big like a ping pong effect that i my emotions went through um all i remember all i remember from that day though that i came back from was like amy adams is amazing because here's the mm-hmm. thing here's the thing amy adams 
could do what Will Smith does in I Am Legend, but I don't think Will Smith could do what Amy Adams does in Enchanted. And that's what Ooh, that's where I came down with called that. Called out. Like, <laughs> called out. And that's why well, I'm so irate that no one has given an award to Amy Adams yet in her life. Amy Adams is the one married to Borat, right? I often think of Alison Brie that way too. Oh, I yeah? like Alison Brie. I do too. Yeah. I feel like she's got a lot more range. But Amy Adams is, yeah, she's something. She's something. We saw her play a ditzy cheerleader last mm. year. That's true. Right? So then I'm guessing that also means that you have never seen The Omega Man before this week. No. My only reference point to this, I feel like this is going to be like a recurring theme this year specifically. Uh, there is a Treehouse of Horror short from The Simpsons that is basically a direct adaptation of this version. It's called The Omega Man, uh, based off of Homer and being the last person on Earth. That's really the only kind of familiarity i have with this movie uh how about charlton heston david what's your familiarity with charlton heston charlton heston is a big part of my growing up really? in movies oh yeah i for whatever reason i think just because of cable television ben-hur and the ten commandments are are like formative movies of my life Staples, because yeah. yeah i've watched them I don't want to say hundreds because that's a lot of watch hours, but it feels like Dozens, that. I've watched least, them yeah. over and over. Yeah, over and over again. They're not short movies. No, no they are not. <laughs> I think both of those were over three hours, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, they're sweeping epics. Yeah. Like, they're literally watching him age in both. <laughs> yeah. they, were the, they were the boyhood of their time. <laughs> what else? I mean, Planet of the Apes. And he just has that gravitas. Of course, uh, Wayne's World too. Um, right. <laughs> and uh, and then sadly, the Michael Moore film, right. where it turns out he might be racist. But um, <sighs> so, you know, who well, isn't I in, mean, ho in Hollywood? I don't know. I, I cannot say definitively one way or the other. I Just to break that open and have that conversation quickly. He is a fascinating person for many different reasons. Not that we've watched this film yet, but my understanding is that it has a moment that is somewhat revolutionary for the time period. And while he definitely is well known for the Michael Moore documentary for like, you know, from my cold dead hands, like he doesn't want the government to come and steal his guns. He was kind of at the forefront of civil rights, weirdly enough, in the entertainment industry. So I don't know. like I don't know where to place him. Yeah. Doing a little bit of background digging. He's a very mysterious human being. I mean, they don't even really know where he was born and <laughs> where his name comes from. Did you read the part where it turns out Heston is his grandmother's maiden name but his siblings took the name before him so it's not a stage name it's just oh. a weird that's yeah, a weird nuance he's got there's a lot of question marks okay. surrounding good old Ch charlton I, uh. I mean i think really my first introduction because i actually didn't watch ben-hur or the ten commandments until years after my childhood what? explains a lot explains a lot uh planet of the apes is definitely where i know him from I've said this bold claim, I think even on this podcast before, about how that original Planet of the Apes is very much like my Star Wars for a Oof. lot of reasons. Some people are like, it's super inspired by the Star Wars franchise and they become obsessive fans of it. That was me with Planet of the Apes. I don't know what it is about that original Planet of the Apes film from 1968, but it is so formative in my mind. I somehow saw it without knowing what the twist was, too. I think that's part of it. I don't know how you escape that. Because that's also a we reference in The it. Simpsons, like about yeah. uh, what the actual twist is in that movie. Yeah, the makeup effects are like they were revolutionary for the time. They don't really necessarily hold up now. Uh, but I don't think that some of the special effects from the original Star Wars hold up very well either <laughs> uh, from almost 50 years not ago. That, not that we can ever see them again. Not that exactly. Yeah. Uh, but there's something about that movie that just like works at my brain. It's like it just checks off a lot of uh, boxes. Uh, so I'm excited to jump into this movie and just see what uh, his next film was after Planet of the Apes, basically. Or I guess like two or three films after Planet of the Apes, probably. Uh, still in his it, like science fiction phase of his career. Because uh, he did like must the, be good. the biblical epics, yeah. the science fiction films, and then kind of trailed off kind of at the end. But I think he started in film noir and westerns. Yeah, yeah. He has yeah, a good phase for westerns, I think. Yeah, yeah. And he, I mean, uh, for those of you who somehow don't know Charlton Heston, just Google what he looked like when he first started. I mean, that's a man. <laughs> oh, right? God. Okay. Yeah. That's a man's man. <laughs> he knew the way to punch a woman. Like <laughs> it's like, uh, who's the other one? Burt Lancaster. Yeah. I don't know if Burt Lancaster's necessarily a good looking man, but he had that uh, full-blown macho masculine uh, 
thing of that he was, era. He was, he was just rugged. A large, he was rugged. Yeah, he was just a large man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let me do this. I'm going to go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be jumping into a discussion about the Omega Man. Hey everyone, it's just Kyle breaking into the conversation here one more time to tell you about some of the people that keep this show continue to go. I need to tell you one other thing. One thing I forgot to mention while Dave and I were talking about this movie is that at the end of this episode, there's going to be a preview for our Patreon bonus episode on Titus. We're still talking about films from 1999 over there, and this one is, of course, adapted from Titus Andronicus, starring Anthony Hopkins, directed by Julie Taymor, and it is going to turn into a bloody affair, just like at the end of this episode, as you'll soon find out, where uh, where we get into a fight. <laughs> so, so prepare yourself for that. But I guess I should tell you that Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by ATB, and today I want to talk to you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. Join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, The Future Of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month plus bonus episodes, The Future Of includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. Subscribe to The Future Of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. And connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing thefutureof at atb.com. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is also brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. Well, Dave... I mean, we've just watched a movie called The Omega Man, of course, and uh, as non-spoilery as possible, what are your reactions to said film? Don't watch it. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> That's my warning to our uh, audience members. Uh, you can skip this one. Yeah. Uh, I, I really didn't enjoy it. I thought it was weird. I think there's a lot of weird things happening in it. I don't know how to do this in a non-spoilery way. So without talking about the so-called plot, if you want to call it that, you know what really jars me is the opening sequence and he's holding a machine gun that's probably still in active use today. Mm -hmm. I was not expecting so much violence. Honestly, I was expecting more. I, apparently I read this is the movie that made Charlton Heston a gun nut. Hmm, so was, he attributes this film into his love of guns, uh, growing love of guns. And you, I mean, how could you not? If the whole movie you're spending with these fully automatic machine guns, spoiler alert, it's, it's a strange film. It's a strange film. I think it's very disjointed, hmm. uh, very corny and very, yeah. I, and I, I, maybe you can enlighten me whether this is intentional, but it's campy, B-movie-esque. And yeah, like it's just, I, I really... I had a lot of different facial expressions huh. watching it, but uh, well, I'm I'm excited for a great many reasons, but the primary one is uh, Dave. I loved this movie. I thought this was great. <laughs> like I really, really enjoyed it, and I didn't think I was going to. To be perfectly honest, I think the two things that you called out there that I agree with you on, but that I think are a positive, is the fact that yes, this is a corny. B movie and it knows that it's a corny B movie and so I was kind of along for the ride at a certain point. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Like I mean basically one of the very first things you see in this movie is him wrecking a like Ferrari car or whatever some fancy car and he wrecks. Uh, yeah. And he, he literally like gets out and is like Ford. there's never a cop when you need one. I'm like okay that's what this kind of movie is. Okay I, I get it. And there's some really funny lines throughout the movie that I'll talk about in spoilers uh, that I loved. 
I, I don't think it's like a complete home run. Like, I'm not saying this is like a five out of five perfect film. Uh, there's some things that I think uh, could have maybe been workshopped a little bit better at the script phase in this in this movie. But for what it is, which is a campy B-movie sci-fi thing that involves vampires and the last man on Earth, I thought it was really fun. So hey, I'm, I'm saying zombies? you should watch it, to be honest with yeah. you. Vampire is a very specific term. Yes. They're not zombies. They're... Well, yeah. Do you know anything we'll about, about the? Because there is a deep history about the terminology they use for these creatures. Yes. Oh, I, I just thought they were uh, just gross. Yeah. We'll <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's it. an interesting way to visualize them. Because they really are just like white painted <laughs> ghouls. See, like, we're, that's really, already, that's, we're already that's talking really about it. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of white facing. We'll, well, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, let's do this so that we can have a more fuller discussion. And because I basically have a novel to talk about here in oh, the brother. context setting. The Omega Man opened on August 1st, 1971. On IMDb, it's rated 6.5. It has a 56 on Metacritic. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 65% from 34 critics. And from 10,000 plus users, it's at a 53%. So there's not a whole lot of love for this movie. I realize I'm kind of an outsider opinion on this. Oh, you're outside. Yeah, you're way outside. On uh, this one. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and it can be rented or purchased from iTunes. Weirdly enough, there's not a whole lot of information on like the budget, what it opened up to. All I know for sure is that it made $4 million in 1971, which is about $25 million uh, after inflation. Which sounds low, but again, going in context with other movies of the time, this is like a modest hit, I guess you could say. Its plot description from IMDb is, Biological war has decimated life on Earth. Los Angeles is a windswept ghost town where Robert Neville tools his convertible through sunlit streets foraging for supplies. Which sounds like the introductory sentence of a novel. <laughs> like, I don't know why they wrote it this way. Well, I guess it's the era where they didn't want to spoil the fun. And if anyone knows about spoiling the fun, it's Dave. It stars Charlton Heston as Neville, Rosalind Cash as Lisa, Anthony Zerb or Zerby as Matthias, and Paul Coslow as Dutch. Anything you want to say about any of those actors? Uh, I mean, we talked a little bit about Charlton. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if you Google him, there's, <laughs> he's fascinating. He's, he's all over the place. Like you mentioned, he's done... Everything from being, uh, well, I mean, outside of film, being a proponent for civil rights in a certain era, being a gun nut, yeah. a gun nut in another. I've got little quotes, like apparently he, as towards the end of his time, he was like anti-gangster uh, rap. Right. But then he apparently, uh, what is it, was initiated by blood by the Lakota Nation in order to salvage the term Native American? Like, what, what the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> I don't what, know. What, what, what what is, I don't know what, it, what that's in context of. Yeah, it's really weird. It, it happened in the 90s. Like, he, I guess he went to this uh, First Nations group and, I guess, asked to be part of their tribe. Hmm. Uh, is that a good thing? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> is that, yeah, spurred by racist sentiment? Uh, he's, he's got a lot of rhetoric about taking... Uh, not feeling guilty about being white and that white people are, you know, kind of stuff that maybe somebody in the Disney world just got fired for. Well, you know, that, mean, that, sort of, that sort of rhetoric was kind of coming out of his mouth towards the end. But he did the, the issue with those so sentiments kind of is that there's nothing wrong with being proud to be like Irish or Scottish or whatever flavor it is. The issue is when you do flavor it that way, I'm proud to be white <laughs> as, as a color because... Anyways, we won't. We don't have to have a civil rights conversation. <laughs> I'm, just, I guess. I'm watching you. Yeah, I'm watching you wade into it, and I'm just gonna. I'm just sit and enjoy the show. And... Yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna watch here, you. Here's enjoy a rope, the show. and you can hang yourself with it. <laughs> uh, I actually don't know much about any of the other people in this movie, and that's my bad. For, a lot. Um, yeah. for some of them, they didn't really do a whole lot of other films, like past the early '80s. So it's like I think uh, Anthony Zerba mm -hmm. has an Emmy. Could uh, for some show. That's good. I've never heard of Harry O. No. That's not a show I would ever watch. No. Yeah. See, this goes back to our conversation about these TV shows that don't break through like the popular consciousness past like one or two years. It's like, that sounds like a made up show to me. And you could. You <laughs> what do you mean? Harry O. You know, Harry oh, O. Classic. Right. It's on. It's, it's five seasons or on DVD probably somewhere. Rosalind Cash apparently was more in theater on the theater side, right. but she died pretty early. She had cancer. Yeah. So, um, 
It one, the one thing that's interesting, apparently she was a voice actor for Sesame Street. Hmm. So that's, that's kind of cool. Good. This is written by John William Corrington and Joyce Hooper Corrington, adapted from the book I Am Legend by Richard Matheson and directed by Boris Segal. Uh, so we should probably start with Richard Matheson. He was born on February 20th, 1926. Uh, so he goes through school, graduates in 1943 because of the year he does a couple of years in the army uh, during World War II in Europe. Uh, but when he comes back, he starts writing his short stories and in uh, in the early 1950s specifically, many of which would become pretty influential in the sci-fi and horror genres. But for the interest of this podcast, we're going to stick to the one book, I Am Legend, which is published in 1954. Now, from what I can tell from the reviews of the time, the critical reaction was a bit mixed. However, it would become remarkably important for both literature and film for a few different reasons. So just as a basis for the rest of our conversation, Dave, I think it's important that we talk about the plot synopsis of the book, because there have been three adaptations of this work. So I Am Legend, the book. Page one. I'm going to do, do the audiobook version now. Page one. Kyle Marshall reads, I am Legend, <laughs> I am legend. the ebook. Yeah. <laughs> it was a dark and stormy night. Penguin Audio introduces I Am Legend. No. Um, so there's a global pandemic. Okay. Man by the name of Robert Neville finds himself to be the last person on Earth. Sounds like paradise. People who survived have turned into what he calls vampires. Pale, can't look in mirrors, repulsed by garlic. They're blood-sucking and nocturnal. And they haunt Neville, coming to his house each night trying to get in. His old neighbor calls out to him. The women expose themselves to him and try to tempt him to come out. So every night he barricades himself in and has basically descended into alcoholism and other addictions because this is his life now. But what he does do during the daytime is he goes out, wanders the city and stakes them through the heart. Because he's found out actually that bullets don't affect them. So he has to go and stake them through the heart. Through flashbacks, we see the trauma that he has gone through because one, he had to burn the body of his own daughter. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that scared me. <laughs> you have to leave that in. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so the machine just this threw just a picture like... across the room here at me and it fell from my wall. And I'll do it again if you're not careful. This is just like we talked about this morning. <laughs> With the Jurassic Park uh, uh, thing. Oh, my oh, God. I can't believe it actually happened. Oh, That's boy. amazing. Did you see that happening <laughs> in real time? Oh, my gosh. My I, heart. Well, I saw it on video, but I, I couldn't warn you because that was, that was something. Okay. How is it even possible? So let's, let's get our... Let's, come on. We're, we're terrified here right now, Dave. We have to get into this. So he has to burn the body of his own daughter by order of the government. His wife also succumbs to this disease. And so because he doesn't want to burn the body, he goes and buries her. But then she returns to him later that night as a vampire and he has to kill her. So that is like his trauma that he's come from. Basically, he then tries to solve the uh, issue. A lot of science mumbo jumbo. Uh, but he discovers a way to kill even more vampires on a larger scale. Three years pass and he comes across this woman. Her name is Ruth. And he's initially a little bit suspicious, but they gain each other's trust. They're even romantically involved for a little bit. And then he notices that she is also repulsed by garlic. Uh, so this leads to him confronting her. She knocks him out. And when he awakens, there's this note, big long note detailing stuff that's been going on. She is one of the vampires and was sent on this little fact finding mission. Neville is responsible for killing her husband. She also lets him know that there are two types of vampires, the undead ones that are very violent and the living ones who are the first wave of the infected, but have some sort of mutation that makes them be more kind of like normal people, except, you know, still blood-sucking vampires. Uh, it's these vampires who are trying to make a new society. And she warns Neville that he is the monster in their world and that he should leave the city as there are plans to come and capture him, put him on trial, and then to kill him. So very stupidly, in my opinion, he thinks that he can persuade them that he can be a member of this new society, but they aren't convinced. So in the final pages, he's in this cell. Ruth comes to visit. She tells him that there is just too much pain that Neville has caused, that he's killed too many of their friends and family, and he decides to take a suicide pill so that this new society can move past the pain and hopefully to flourish so he will become a legend in this new society. He is the legend. Response to just that quick plot synopsis of the book. Uh, it was too long, like this movie. <laughs> Great. 
uh, clearly much more intricate and nuanced yes. than the film, uh, this version of the film, which I don't know if we're going to talk about John and Joyce, but they did end up becoming uh, prominent soap opera writers. Yeah, that's going to be when the next thing. But yeah, they're soap opera writers. Link. I think there is a yeah. link, 100%. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can ask John and Joyce, although I think John passed away quite a few decades yes. ago, um, why they would take all of that out. It's a much more interesting film yeah, concept. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And and there's not been truly yet an actual depiction of that plot in, in movies. Okay, so the Will Smith movie and the Vincent Price movie. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that here okay. in a moment too. But I agree with you. I think that the book has a lot more nuance to it because really the thrust of this book which is not in this movie. I want to be very clear. I don't even think that the movie's trying to do this. No. Is that uh, he comes to this realization that, oh, I'm the monster in this. I thought that they were this thing and I created this whole legend around them, but that's not what's going on. I am actually the monster in their world. And there may have been a way to like, you know, coalesce and like have an, an actual society with them, but he decided to go into killing mode way too early. I don't know why. Maybe it's oblivion. I just feel like there are other movies that have played with this concept better, hmm. um, but I can't name them offhand. So maybe I'm just making I it up because it up. I just really wished that this movie had done a better job. Yeah. Um, I will also comment snarkily that you've done a lot of background on a book you still haven't read. I still have not which read. Which is really funny. I know. Yeah. It's like, I have no idea if this is like good <laughs> prose or anything, but um, the other thing is that uh, of how much of this book and then the original movie that was adapted from this book has really influenced the horror genre specifically. So in the book, as I mentioned, they are called vampires. And Matheson has always said that these are vampires that I created. But they also do not act like traditional vampires from gothic fiction. Uh, certainly not the kind that people would have been familiar with even in the 70s. Uh, like they're, no not the, they're not the Bram Stoker, Dracula, or the film starring Bela Lugosi. They're not that kind of vampire. These are zombies, like slow moving zombies in the book, especially like they're lumbering type of thing. Yes, they can talk and vocalize, but they're slow moving zombies. The first movie that was adapted that I watched this week is called The Last Man on Earth. And it stars Vincent Price comes out in 1964. Uh, are you a Vincent Price fan by any chance? I mean, I know him. the voiceover and thriller. Yeah. I've seen some snippets of his uh, black and white horror show. Mm -hmm. I I'm pretty sure. Growing up in the 80s, there are little uh, oh, segments yeah. that would have popped up. But, you know, I'm not a fan as in uh, I know anything that he's done. Yeah. I love, <laughs> than... love Vincent Price. He he was in some of the Invisible Man movies, but he, I find, usually played like the um, mad scientist role. Like that's kind of what he did for a long time. He had the face for it. Yeah. Yep. Um, he's actually in the second version of... Uh, the Wax Museum. He's a great actor. I think he always elevates the material, even when he's in like dog shit films. I think he does actually really great. He's always he's always great. I wasn't a huge fan of this first movie. I, I think they spend way too much time in the flashbacks. Uh, regardless, it's in black and white. Matheson actually helped to co-write the script, but eventually asked for uh, his credit to become a pseudonym because he was uh, kind of upset by how it came about and how it turned out. Weirdly enough, though, of the three films that have been adapted from this work, that's the one that is the closest to the plot that I just read out. But even then, that ending where he discovers he's the monster also does not happen. <laughs> it's like the only part that relates to the... I know. And it's, and it's the part the that gets cut book. out in every single film. All three do yeah. not have that ending. Well, it's weird. Spoiler, this movie goes the other way. Oh, yeah. It's like he's the yeah. savior of humanity, yeah. as I know. I mean, he's... Fucking, yeah. All right, let's move on. Here's the biggest thing that that movie does, though. That movie, with these slow-moving vampires, which they don't call vampires in, in that movie, The Last Man on Earth, but they're these shambling creatures and, like, high-moving, look like zombies. It is directly responsible for inspiring George Romero to make Night of the Living Dead. It, that is the movie that he says he saw, and like, oh, zombies could be like this. And so he writes that, makes that movie in 1968. So the, the book, uh, I Am Legend, plus that movie adaptation that he saw coupled together is basically Night of the Living Dead, which I also watched this week and is phenomenal. I love that movie. It's really, really great. Talk about depressing endings. That's the movie you should watch because it's like, ooh, it does not end well. And actually has something to say. It's uh, very much about race relations in the late 1960s, that movie. I'll pass. 
It's great. It's on Criterion Channel if you want to check it out. Are we getting money from Criterion at this point? Everything's on Criterion. Yeah. Yeah, we need to call them. Armageddon's on Criterion, so you can go watch that too, but... This further added to the lore of the modern zombie, which, like, much like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, is so influential that basically if you're going to make a movie that features zombies today, you're either taking stuff that Romero invented and helped uh, coalesce through Night of the Living Dead, or you're actively going against it. Either way, you're being inspired by it. Here's my pitch. Zombies in Middle Earth. That's an easy $1 billion if you make that movie. So then... 1971 comes and they want to adapt this novel again like it's not even 10 years after that original film came out some key differences though it is now a biological attack not a pandemic uh neville's wife and daughter are not in this movie and a whole bunch of survivor characters are created but a lot has changed in those years too a character is introduced to reference the rise of the black power movement um and i think something that we'll probably continually see in 1971 is I think Vietnam has a very direct inspiration for how they frame some of the stuff that happens in this film. I don't know if you would agree with that. I mean, I was doing some background write-up just about the era. And I think, I mean, Vietnam is focal point, but I mean, you got the Cuban Cuban Missile Crisis. You got all Mm -hmm. post-war 40s and 50s FBI-controlled mass media. You've got uh, propaganda everywhere. So it's unsurprising that by the late 60s, as that started to break down with the uh, uh, second generation coming out of the war and the rebel- cultural re- rebellion of that time, that, yeah, we, you get this boiling pot between uh, historical paranoia of war and this anti-war sort of uh, rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And then dep- we'll see, depending on the director and what generation they're appealing to, there's going to be... Yeah, pro-spy, pro-war stuff. Or very anti-that, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see something very racist soon. It's going to happen. It's got to happen. <laughs> it has so, to. We'll see. <laughs> um, so they get the husband and wife writing team of John William Corrington and Joyce Hooper Corrington. Um, they essentially are moonlighting as writers because he's going to law school, eventually becomes a lawyer for a few years. But they have this kind of explosion of credits in the early 70s. This movie, the fifth and final Planet of the Apes movie. So they have a great for me. That's Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And then Boxcar Bertha, which is Martin Scorsese's first movie, is something that they wrote as well. They take a break, come back in the 80s and essentially serve as staff writers or creators of a bunch of daytime TV soaps. General Hospital, Santa Barbara, and the one that they created called Texas, um, which I've never heard of in my life. But General Hospital, Santa Barbara, um, they're responsible for too. They get... Boris Segal to direct. He's Ukrainian, born though in the former USSR. He started directing in the 50s, um, which is like just a ton of television credits. Uh, His first feature film is from 1962 called The Crime Busters. But that was literally just two television episodes of a show called Kane's 100 put together and released in the movie theaters. Remember the TV show Kane's 100, Dave? Boy, do I remember watching episodes of Kane's 100. It was right after Harry O. That's right. Um, His first real film was from the following year called Dime with a Halo. Uh, And after this film that we're going to talk about more, he would go back to TV, TV movies, episodes of TV, most famous probably being Columbo. He did a few episodes of Columbo, but that's he didn't have an extensive film career as a director. I think he died early, too. Oh, did you know? Do you know how he died? No. Oh, this is a good one. Okay. It's creepy. I think it's in the he did, in the 80s or 90s he died, I think. He died in the in 81, partially decapitated by a helicopter. Oh, is this from the Twilight Zone movie? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what he was shooting, oh, okay. but he was stepping out of a helicopter that I just transported him to set and he turned the wrong way <sighs> and it cut off most of his head. This is, uh, can I just tell you, this is like one of my greatest fears, weirdly. <laughs> is getting decapitated by a helicopter specifically (laughs) uh to the point where i will never go into a helicopter i just do never want to experience that because that's what i'm afraid i'm going to come up and i'm just going to get whacked off let me i mean i have (laughs) whacked off i'm gonna get whacked off dave that's what i just said i'm gonna get whacked off so i another another saturday night for you i i've been on a helicopter as you know without doors to take pictures and i gotta say i do not understand how you can turn the wrong way mm. because you have a giant machine with spinning rotors uh you should be aware aware said rotors are spinning 
And this is pre-iPhone, so it's not like he was staring at something. Um, it's very loud. <laughs> it's he, not like he, he probably can just was just reading the newspaper. He's just engrossed. It's fascinating. In Anyways, some Reagan Reagan Reaganomics or something. Um, so you heard it here first, folks. Dave is blaming a dead man for his own death. Well, they blame him for turning the wrong way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how it's written. Yeah. I always exit a helicopter by pogo stick. All right, Dave. Um, give it to me. Why do you hate this movie so much? Oh, all of it. I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. Just all I mean, of it, in general. You, you know that I don't like uh, horror movies. So already, well, let's, let's delve into that then. What is it about horror okay. movies that you do not like? Well, I think the idea of liking B-movie and camp can be funny, but I don't want to spend money there. And then uh, horror movies, you which are, are pretentious. You're a pretentious, Dave intentionally designed to harm you psychologically i i'm already harmed so i don't need to actively uh, participate in that i you know my first horror movie i watched i went to sleepover and it was pet cemetery mm. uh, serpent in the rainbow and hellraiser so i remember distinctly and i don't think i slept for three days and uh, you know i think it was maybe 11 I, I don't know it was it was inappropriate at the time yeah, uh, yeah. and i i just uh, ever since then i'm like why why would i why would I watch something where I'm not going to sleep? It's not fun for me. And now, I don't know, I, you know, listening to you go on about how you liked this piece of shit, I, you know, I can, I can understand <laughs> yeah. uh, if you have a certain framework of appreciating that there might have been an intent. Like looking at uh, Boris Sagal, Sagal's, uh, some of his credits, I mean, he, he was in this sort of campy mm-hmm. uh, horror genre. So maybe they meant to make it like this, but... Uh, the appearance of uh, the head zombie is it's a fucking joke it's like yeah. something out of a monty python yeah. movie it's i agree so with that stupid. and that's why i loved it <laughs> <laughs> awful you know even charlton heston i think he's terrible in this movie i i cannot get behind he looks so gross he's <laughs> well, uh, he's the last he's man such on earth an Dave. Asshole. he's no he can't drive well right? he can't he drive, can't drive a straight that. line but what i loved know? about it too is like this is such a 70s film in that sure we have like shirtless Charlton Heston at like fifty something. I think he was fifty one <laughs> when they made this movie. But it's just like he's there, he's like a little bit of a gut like hanging out there, but he's just like, Yeah, I'm a man's man. <laughs> and that was allowed to be a thing and he could be looked at as like desirable. There is no way that they would make a movie actually I know they wouldn't, because in the two thousand seven version, there's a similar scene with with Will Smith and he is yoked. Like he is just like rippling with muscles. You can't have you cannot have a shirtless man in a movie without it being a joke nowadays. You cannot have that be a desirable human anymore. Charlton Heston is not flabby in this film. He's old, right? Yeah. But he's still, I mean, he's still a he's very a bit saggy. broad. Fine. But he's a broad and relatively um, movie looking person for someone in their 50s. Now, granted, in the 70s, people who are in their 50s looked like they yes, were 70s. They so do. there's, they do. you know, there's a bit of a schism there. But. I mean, he's not, um, I, he's not, uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of somebody who hasn't aged that well, uh, being naked and trying to have sex with young black women. But, uh, you know, the whole thing is just so cheap. You know, I, I, I couldn't follow along. The plot didn't make any sense. The characters are so thin. You know, the, the dialogue is so corny. Um, See, there are moments, you're, I'm like, not necessarily disagreeing op- with anything you're saying. And I know, yet all of I this know. is a positive for me of what you're saying. <laughs> Uh, my favorite scene is just the opening scene because yes. there's no score and he's just driving in. And that actually feels like how you would shoot a, a good post-apocalyptic film today. You know, you get that sense of like there being nothing and that eerie uh, emptiness. And then as soon as he whips out the machine gun, I'm just like, what the f- what the fuck is going on? He does like, shoot what? a lot why? of guns in the first five minutes oh of this movie. God. Just um, like, why? Why? The, There's a lot of why. I will say, too, of, the, of all three of the movies that have been adapted from the same source material, I actually my favorite parts are the beginnings of them just like experiencing the city with nobody in it Empty. and wandering it around. And I say that this is the same thing here. This is actually shot up to be one of my all-time favorite just movie openings of all time for me the first 20 minutes are like the best part like by far the 20, best part 20 minutes it's maybe like even five, more because it's like five minutes. walking around yeah. making these like little quips here and there getting the car yeah. 
uh, like talking yeah. to the dead people, going and watching the movie and everything like that, rushing back to his house. Like all of that stuff is like, I'm in this. Like it's so good. I had to write. I'm going to, I wrote some of them down because of course my brain doesn't work anymore and I wouldn't be able to remember them off the top of my head. Hold on. Everybody. Kyle is just using this as an excuse to do a tight five. Uh, like when he meets up with the, the survivors, right? There's a little girl who's like, are you God? And then Lisa's like, right. let's find out if he's even a doctor before we go promoting him. Okay. It's great. That's a great bit of a little is bit that of a wine great line. It is. Right. And then yeah. when he first sees like the little like vampire zombies out there burning books again, he's like, at it again, I see. What will it be tonight? Museum of Science? Some library? Poor, miserable bastards. Like his whole like interaction with that like mannequin that he's playing the chess game with. Like this guy's. Oh, and what is it? He's uh, <laughs> he's like he has his own like little surveillance system going around. It's like something like, hi, big brother. How's your ass? Like, because he's looking at himself on the TV. Like all can of this stuff is- Can you hear me shaking is, my head? Do you think the listeners can hear me shaking my head well, while you're, the, while you're the smiling thing about it is at that <laughs> None of this, I feel, is meant to be taken seriously. Now, if we want to have the conversation, is this a good adaptation of the source material? I think that's a whole completely different conversation. Because I would say, no, it's not a great adaptation of the source material. But taking a look at it is just as a movie by itself in isolation. I think this movie knows exactly what it's trying to be. I think it knows that it's a low-level B-movie sci-fi thing, and it's not trying to be anything else besides that. And with that, I think it excels. The only thing I don't really love about this movie is like the whole like preoccupation, honestly, of them finding the uh, cure. the cure and like running yeah. the blood and blah blah blah. Because like, really, yeah. at the end of the day, it's like I don't really care about that in this in this movie because it's like. We want him to succeed. Well, I want him to succeed. He's found like these other survivors. We want to get in, take out this like weird occult hooded robed bad people. Anti anti technology. Yeah, yeah. And, and and get out. A GTFO, basically. That's basically all I wanted to see. And so I feel like it's really bogged down in that like middle portion. And then I'm totally in with it again. Uh, this is the era of like practical stunts happening. So I know that those are real people, although we you watched, know, you know that it, that is not Charlton Heston driving on the motorcycle oh, at it's all. Awful. Like those cuts are all. terrible. I, I agree yeah. with that. It's, it's like a like, twenty-year-old dude in a wig. One hundred percent. You know, it's, like, it's not even close to his real not, hair. Not even close. Like <laughs> there, there's there, no gray in that hair whatsoever in the wide shots. I'm like, that's not Charlton Heston. And it's unfair because this is how you did in the '70s. But there are clear mannequins used in so many different of the stunts, uh, parts of stunts. You know, I'm just gonna make a quick thing about B movies. If this movie was funny. I could I could handle it. But the idea of a B movie knowing what it is for itself and still trying to be serious about it is fucking awful, man. Like if it was trying to be comedic about it, I See, I think I they that, I think it, those but... lines are comedic though. Those lines work for me in a comedic fashion. Right. I should point out too. So the other thing I I think this might be giving it a little bit more credit than it deserves, but I will state it. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg actually said that this was a movie that was really influential for her because of the fact that Charlton Heston, um, the kiss between Charlton Heston and Rosalind Cash was like formative because this is one. Uh, I tried to find out what movie was the first interracial kiss and I could not find definitive well, Sha answers Shaft to that. Had it, but yeah. Oh, that's Shaft true. Yeah, you're right. Back, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Both, Both of those, those films, films had, had it. Yeah, yeah. You're, but and those were not as big budget. Yeah, those weren't as big budget as this one is. But yeah, no, you're right. There's no way this is a big budget film, but it is Charlton Heston. Well, I'm just saying, as compared to those two films, this had like a huge budget. I'm gonna guess behind it. He has a he has an anecdote because you know Rosalind Cash, as we discussed, wasn't yeah. sort of a big name uh, movie actress, but he said that she was very uncomfortable with that scene and she quipped allegedly that she was having a hard time kissing Moses. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, they should have kept that in that the film. Yeah, that should have been in the yeah. film. If it's self-referential, yeah. right? If somebody called him Ben-Hur, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, you picked up something that's funny, but there's I, like, I don't there's know. There's totally <laughs> a side. You probably never watched the TV show Stargate. Um, but it's No, the movie... Yeah, but the movie's good. awful. With, uh, the the, the TV, I gotta watch it again. Yeah. But the TV I show, the, movie the TV show stars Richard Dean Anderson, who was also the star of MacGyver. And there's actually MacGyver. a scene where someone actually uh, ad libs that. It's like, how are we gonna MacGyver our way out of this one? And you can see him <laughs> be like, "Shall I react to this?" Regardless, so there's there's that portion that's in the movie that I think yes, because this film, unlike Sweetback and Shaft, 
was primarily going to be positioned or advertised to white people. I think there is a bit of a power to that. Yes, there's already in the late 60s, like Star Trek famously had the interracial kiss between uh, Kirk and Uhura, right. but they had to like couch that because it was like she's she's mind controlled. And so it wasn't really them having a kiss sort of thing. But this is full on like they both actually they want it. Um, and then they have to also show her breasts, which I thought was a little maybe gratuitous, but egregiously. Yeah, often for yeah. no reason. Yeah. Like, why is she at a store trying on dresses naked, right. surrounded by zombies like the. All right. Anyways, let's move on. Pass, before I get pass upset. those two yeah. things. <laughs> um, I'm still waiting for you to convince me that you actually liked any of it. And this is a lot of criticism. The, frankly. Well, okay. Well, yeah. I, I think it's 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 important in our roles as like cultural critics. I can't even say that with a straight face. With as, as my role, intellectuals, as intellectuals, we are super intellectuals. Talking about the movie The Omega Man. Um, I think it's important to talk about things I didn't like, but I think overall, like. I guess I just straight up disagree with some of your points. I think Charlton Heston is like the perfect person to be in this film because he brings a certain gravitas to this role. I think that you need, you need to have someone who is like, as much as I hate that term, like that man's man. Like I am, I can conceivably think of Charlton Heston being the last man on earth and him actually surviving for, for more than like five minutes. And then I think he has the right type of, way to like do those quips that really like worked for me and then even like uh rosalind cash i think that she brings this like power to her to be like she's okay, great i, I think yeah. yes i can conceivably see her also being like the leader of this like splinter group and that sort of thing what i wish there was actually more of is i think that there i wish there actually was more of a push for that debate between the worldview of the vampire zombies and the worldview of the Charlton heston character because at the end of the day he's yes kind of just there to to kill them <laughs> and yeah. i guess is also a scientist well i guess we can believe that for a moment but i think it might be on par with um denise richards being a being a scientist as well but um well look number one talking about believing in his masculinity who the fuck can walk away from a helicopter crash that set him on fire uh, to inject himself with the vaccine he survived he survived a a rocket crash on the planet of the apes. He went to the ape planet, Dave. Uh, spoiler alert. He never left. <laughs> <laughs> you blow it up. He's my hero. I, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I, I just, none of it for me is something, I, you know what I distinctly remember? Are you talking like this is like one of the worst films you've ever sat through though? Or are you just saying that you disliked it? morally i don't know how else to frame that no it's one of the worst movies i've ever seen and i'll tell you what i mean by that is while we were sitting together just watching it together Mm -hmm. just now in our deep and rich fiction i had to continually repeat to myself that i had to keep watching this for this podcast Mm. because i continually wanted to turn it off and while its production value is greater than let's say blair witch I disliked this movie a lot. Mm. In each moment that appeared, I, I was like, okay, maybe I should give this a chance because uh, it's on our list. And then it's just insulting. Uh, the whole, th- like with the kid, uh, Ros- Rosalind Cash's brother, he gets cured and then naively decides to go to the zombies to broker peace. Like that's such a stupid, like it doesn't make any sense, um, his character. And then, I don't know, the whole thing is dumb. I, I couldn't, I couldn't follow any of it. <laughs> I, I think I'm maybe gonna, you just need to uh, pay attention more to the, what's happening on screen and not look at your phone so much, Dave. <laughs> do you think there's any reason other than probably like the studio owning the rights to it? Do you think there's any reason for him to be watching the movie Woodstock in that movie theater? I don't know. That, that was also something weird. This is what I was actually trying to grapple with because it seems like he, the character, I don't know if Heston in real life had these feelings, but it seems like there's this appreciation of the hippie movement in this movie. Um, well, uh, we saw that with at the same time, Strange, like he feels like he's haunted field. by war. He has these flashbacks. Like it feels like it's anti-war. Yeah, but I don't know if it is. Like I just don't know. It's anti-war, but pro-personal violence. It's like right. The political wars are bad, but I can fucking take a machine gun and murder whoever I want because I'm the last man. It's it's conflicted, right? It, you know, when you were talking about the book you've never read in such detail, I was thinking about how um, this sense that this last man on earth has a conflict within himself, right? You know, should he be trying to kill people? There, there's an essence of that. Uh, and that is not at all how this movie plays out. He's, he's just on a rampage to murder everything in his wake for 
God knows what reason, um, but then he coexists with them at night, yelling at them as they taunt each other from his penthouse, yeah. right, luxury. The whole thing is just convoluted. And none of it you makes should sense. Then, you should watch the Vincent Price movie then, um, if you want more of that. The unfortunate part is that it's very <laughs> uninteresting in that movie, because you can tell they only had money for two sets. So it's just him <laughs> like, like, what should I be doing? What should I be doing? I'm like, well, maybe something with action involved and this movie has action up the wazoo dave that's yeah, what i want flipped, to say yeah they, they, they flipped, flipped the script uh, here on this one well they also try to make him into this weird messiah at the end which i think is awful right he's stabbed to the heart but he yeah. survives in the morning to give them the cure like and the worst part of this and this is such a b-movie thing is that she's now converted converted completely into a so-called vampire they are uh broken by the light but just for the sake of having her in the last scene in the middle of the day, she's hiding in a cowl and they're like, she's yeah. like, Oh, I love you. Thanks for saving me. And then they put her into this fucking truck as they go off into Eden. It's so dumb. Like, there isn't any part where any of it makes any sense. Like, I don't know. I, uh, I refuse I to give that, this movie any credit. I, I just call that goofy fun, Dave. That's goofy fun. It's illegal for you to ever say the word goofy again. What was I going to say? I, I like that they're in one scene, he's dressed up literally as Austin Powers, it feels like. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, like, what is that outfit that he is wearing? I don't like. It's weird. Um, well, I also say, this is so, this is such a me thing. I, because I'm 12, crack up literally when someone uses as like a swear balls. <laughs> and he does it. It's like he's like doing something. He's like balls. And it's just like from Charlie Heston. It sounds so weird. And I loved it. It was so great. The other thing I think we should have a quick conversation about, because this is now the second movie to reference James Bond that we've mm. we've watched. Well, tangentially again. Well, I'm using that word a lot today. Math. He talks about or I think he's accused of trying to be like a James Bond character in this movie. Um and then one of the Shaft sequels also, he says, like, I'm the black James Bond is, yeah, yeah, is yeah. what he says. Um, so there seems to be here in the early 70s, definitely a reckoning. Hey, like this, there's a franchise. James Bond is very popular. And it's almost like trying to compare yourself to that character. I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I just think it's interesting that there's such a pervasive element that movies are feeling compelled. But we have to kind of mention this or also be weird for this character not to mention it. You know what I think it is? I, I, I mean, I'll be presumptuous about this, but I think that the nation's control of propaganda resulted on both sides of the so-called, you know, communist, capitalist, uh, whatever, divide in creating spy fictions. I mean, you see that really, really enforced post-World War II. And I think that becomes part of the cultural diaspora Whoa. because- the uh, countries need people to support espionage and they need people to glorify the idea of a spy. But I bet maybe a smarter person than us could look at the late 60s and you know all of this libertarian and civil rights and everything boiling, that there's an irony to this where you know someone writing Shaft is like, well, these spies are actually not role models. So let's create one that the people can be attracted to. So Shaft is not controlled by the government. He's like this Bond-like character, but he's protecting the people. And I think Charlton Heston is the same thing. He's not uh, part of a big government conspiracy. He's trying to liberate, I guess, himself. Uh, nobody actually knows because this movie's terrible. But, you know, there's a sense where we'll see, I'm, I'm just looking ahead, that that uh, that character's getting flipped on its head, where we're starting mm -hmm. to distrust spies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just thinking loosely back at the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you know, all the movies, these are the movies that give us the idea of the, and TV, right? Like the, the, um, salary earning man and the housewife and the neat skirt and the, the kids growing up in this idyllic suburban life, you know, all of that bullshit is kind of being reinforced during the fifties and sixties as part of uh, cold war propaganda. And I think that what you're sensing, I am anyways, is a pushback. So you know, these people are popular. James Bond is popular. Sean Connery is popular. But the people writing these things are like starting to ask why. I yeah, think. why are they yeah. popular? Yeah. Um, I, 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 I can agree with that too. I think James Bond was just such a inflection point of being, look at all this cool stuff that's going on. But it had started to get into like that fantastical world of like, 
you know, volcano uh, layers and stuff that you're going to. This, this is the, that attempt to be like, we're the realistic James Bond. I don't know so much with this this movie in particular, but I think that people are realizing, yeah, we need to at least for a character to be believable, they can't just like in isolation do this stuff and not reference, hey, that felt like this fantastical thing that we see on the movies. One of the last things I just wanted to mention, I think it is very telling that one of the major changes they made is that instead of it being a pandemic, like a a virus that's come out, that this is specifically biological warfare sent from another country. And in my mind, that does take off a little of the culpability, or not culpability, but like because they are so into the Cold War at this point, Vietnam is still raging. I think that that was front of mind for so many people that, hey, this could happen. A, another country outside of us here could send this over and do this to us. Pandemics are a little bit more gray because it's not an ex- it's not a country or a nation or a person who's creating it. It's somewhat kind of like nature coming coming after us. And it's up to us to have like personal responsibility on how we actually go up against that. And I think that's greatly re- relevant to what's going on in modern day right now. Unless you're a subscriber to Parlor or the Proud Boys. Um, yeah, there is a schism. I, I do think, like you brought up, it is interesting that they would change that. I think they say because it's more believable or was mm. more in tune with the times that it would be uh, an attack. What's unclear in the movie, I mean, putting all of the politics and all that stuff aside, what I couldn't understand about this or Andromeda strain is uh, who who is responsible? Is it the US? Is it the USSR? Who designed the weapon? They don't really, they never get into that. You know, I know the Andromeda strain at the end, you know, is a space virus, but there's there's a lot of stuff that's uh, implied, but nobody, like you said, nobody wants to take responsibility for it. So. It's believable in a paranoic, is that yeah. a word? Well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll say it is. But it's not an explanation. So it, again, another reason why I hate this movie, because they just throw it in, they have some flashbacks of, I can't remember, was it a newscaster or yeah. somebody talking some shit? And I'm just like, I don't, I don't even understand what you're saying. It doesn't make any sense. I don't care. If I had a fast forward button, which I did, I would uh, do a little skip ahead, which I didn't, sadly. And uh, you watched and the full hour and 40 something minutes of this 40 movie. Something. It felt like <laughs> I was watching Ben Hur. It <laughs> felt like four hours of my life that uh-huh. I lost. I had one of those things like sometimes we text each other on the couch uh, where I'm just like, how is there still one hour left? <laughs> this many minutes left. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've been sitting here for three hours. So yeah, don't watch this movie. I don't th- give it any, don't give it any energy. I don't- say it's at least worth a rental. <laughs> Let me put it that way. I don't know if I'd pay full money for a Blu-ray <laughs> copy of this movie, but it's it's worth a rental. You can watch the shit effects in uh, 4K. If there's like a drive-in near you and they're playing it, this is a perfect drive-in movie, in my opinion. I wonder if drive-ins will come back instead they of They did theaters. at the beginning of the pandemic for a little bit. but We're done here. Uh, the machine has told us that we do need to wrap up. So Dave, we do need to ask those two questions that we normally ask at the end of the show. So do you think this holds <laughs> up and is it still culturally relevant? No and no. Oh yeah. man, is that quick enough? For Hard you? disagree. <laughs> I don't. Well, I will say this. I don't know if it holds up in like the strictest sense. I enjoyed myself immensely, so I'm going to say that it holds up for me. But I actually, more fervently, will support. Is it this still culturally relevant? I think that this source material is still super relevant to today. Yeah, but that's two different questions. I guess asking. so. That, that is you're true. You're asking about the novel that you didn't read. They did not read. <laughs> but uh, I, I, like, I would not be surprised if in the next five years there is another adaptation of this sure. book, honestly. Um, yeah. And I really do want to see this story adapted, like literally how it is written. You yeah, know, that, that storyline. I think that is such yeah. a fascinating delve in, into it. Um, I also watched the I Am Legend movie starring Will Smith this week. A, I mean, when I saw that back in 2007, I didn't really love the CGI effects, and they're even worse now, unfortunately. Like, it just, it's not good. Uh, the first half is great. I will say that. I really love that first half. But it's, again, him alone in the city, walking, walking around with a dog and, like, just experiencing that world. And then it just goes to complete shit after that, uh, unfortunately. But I think there's something to this story that still fascinates people. So seeing that straight adaptation, um, having that conversation that is slightly brought up in the I Am Legend movie and is apparently much more in the book about like faith, like religious faith in the face of a cataclysmic disaster. Like, how do you still have that faith 
even after something like that huge versus the person who has lost faith but still wants to survive. Um, so again, I think there's these ideas and themes from the original novel that are still relevant and can still be adapted. The movie The Omega Man is fun, goofy fun, but I don't think is going to be like on the top of anyone's list in like 25 years from now. Yeah, when you talked about the novel, the idea of, uh, you know, descent into darkness, the loss of faith in humanity, those are historic and powerful themes. Whether the book's any good, neither yeah. of us know, because neither of us have read it. I mean, it, I but... read that Wikipedia synopsis. <laughs> I am pretty sure that... <laughs> yeah, listening to you read the synopsis of of the book, I'm more interested in that, honestly. I don't know if that's necessarily a good story, you know, written uh, by whomever wrote it. Richard Matheson, um, yeah. But it sounds a lot more interesting than this piece of crap. And I think that uh, the concept that might have inspired this movie, maybe that's, you know, maybe there's something there. But this movie should just be stricken from the record. It should be burned. And uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a mark against Charlton Heston. Although it turns out the 70s were not a kind decade for him in general. So, mm. you know, well, maybe it was the, the mark of the end of his career. I'm still not sure if Dave liked this movie or not. Uh, well, I definitely want to know how we're going to rate this. But before we do, um, that's what Dave and I thought about the movie The Omega Man. Uh, but we do want to know what you think. You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our letterboxed page, letterboxed.com slash KDVSTM. And uh, if you want to help support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse again, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. But something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Uh, so let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, what would you give this movie? Uh, I'm going to give it a one. Yeah. A one? I, Come on. Yeah. yeah. A one. It, it is a number. It is a number. And it's the number I'm going to give to this movie. <laughs> you look so upset. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just saying, Dave, like I, from what you were saying, I thought maybe a two was what you're going to go with and not uh Did I name a redeeming feature? I don't remember. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you said so. that you thought Charlton Heston was the epitome of manliness. So no, I thought that would account I think for you something. Did. Yeah. I think Rosalind Cash is pretty good in it. So it's not a 0.5. Like I said, I really loved this movie. <laughs> I thought it was so much fun. I had such good times with this. So uh, again, not perfect, but it, a, a solid, enjoyable ride. I'm giving it a four. Wow. I'm giving it a four, okay. man. We When we catalog what you've given fours to, this is going to make you feel... This is question as yourself. good as the Green Mile, Dave. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, I do want to be, point, be very specific here. I do rate things based on what they are trying to accomplish right. and whether or not right. I think that they accomplish them. I'm not saying like... You, you're according to Will, a lot of positive According to Susan Kane, how would I rate <laughs> this movie? I'm not going to do that. But okay. it's going to come up like that on the... I mean, you got to think about the... No, the broader, no, you don't have no. to. You have to look at the all movie right. by itself and, and, and take it for what it is. So Then I'd give it a zero. But yeah, all right, let's keep going. <laughs> well, Dave. <laughs> so just to like put this into our ratings properly then, I'm still going to assume though that you think that this is better than Sweet Sweet Backs or no? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, it's it's better constructed from a physical movie sense. Okay. It's culturally not... Culturally, I think Sweetback's trying to challenge something a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, deeply. This thing has no cultural yeah, power it, at all. I, so. It definitely has like it. It has as a film. As it a has film. dialogue, but it's not really trying for that at all. Like yeah. it's not trying to do yeah. anything. But then, okay, would you rate this above or below Andromeda Strain? Because because they're tied basically at this yeah. point. I would put it below Andromeda Strain. I don't know why, but I feel like Andromeda Strain was at least trying to be something. Whereas this was like taking a shit in the toilet and trying to tell somebody it was art. <laughs> tell me how you really feel, Dave. Though I'm not really <laughs> sensing like what you what your true feelings are about this. Does sound a bit bitter? Yeah, I I lost ninety the, minutes the, to the this thing. The thing about so. it is that for me, I just found that the Andromeda Strain was much more of a boring watch in many cases. Like this, I was yeah, never maybe. I would say bored with, but. Uh, 
All right, I'll give you. But I'll because you, you have it so much further do down, I, I'm going to say that fine. We can write it currently underneath the Andromeda strain, uh, which means I love that. I hated it, and you loved it. <laughs> Finally, some discord, right? Yeah. Oh, we can fight about it. It's great. That's what the listeners want, right? <laughs> they don't want us to get along. No, they not at all. To, uh, so the Omega Man then will enter our list at the number three position. We've only we're, not we've, for long. we've only talked about four <laughs> movies though. This is definitely going to get pushed down that list pretty quickly. Yeah. Presumably, although it's 1971, so we'll see. There might be there might be worse garbage out there. Oh, I'm definitely sure that there's going to be worse garbage out there. <laughs> Uh, well, let's find out what we're talking about here next week, Dave. Well, let's push the, the button here. Oh, uh, Dave, we're going to be talking about Death in Venice. Nope, nothing. I only have a slight knowledge about this movie only because as we're recording this, the Sundance Film Festival is going on uh, virtually. Uh, unless you're in Canada, we can't do it at all. And it frustrates me to no end because there's a documentary that came out this year that's about the making of this movie and the fallout from the making of this movie that I'm excited to delve into because I'm pretty sure we're going to have very strong opinions about this film next week, just based on what the subject matter is. So tune in next week, folks, to see what's going on. (laughs) Now I need to find out what the subject matter is. No, you know what? It'll be better if I go blind. Go blind. Go on blind and then be enraged by the end. I don't know if I can get any more enraged. Uh Uh, Dave, I just realized we haven't actually, uh, you know, actually started the spaceship here we have been like just docked beside this convenience store and i think i think i saw the lights just turn on so um let's skedaddle the lights are really hurting my eyes can you can you check what color they are oh my god i guess you just don't like fun dave you know, you know what I enjoy, Kyle? What's that? Good movies. Good movies. <laughs> you can keep that in a cut. I actually find that was true with that last Macbeth in, um, version, which is like, it looked gorgeous. Like any frame you wanted to grab from that would make a great art piece on a wall. But what they had every character do was basically be like, I'm going to talk like this. <laughs> whisper into the camera. Like that's where things like, out, out, like out, out, damn spot, like all, all like, and it's like, what are you saying? Like, I can't hear what you're saying. And I'm in a theater with like huge, gigantic sound. I can barely hear what you're speaking. <laughs> like it, it frustrated me to no end. It's like, no, these are things that they're grand. And you want to be yelling that you want to be like Anthony Hopkins here when he sees his daughter's hands have been cut off. And it's like, kill me. And like, like trying to like. Uh, wrestle the sword away and like you know take my life um and just screaming at the heavens like that's what you want to see that's when you shakespeare. See, like a shakespeare that's, that's shakespeare right there <laughs> i want to see the spit just like forming onto the camera lens as you're freaking out you know i i've been thinking about this we were watching something last oh we watched red i know this is a, a reach but i kept thinking like why also is, very shakespearean well yeah. i was thinking like why why do i know all about mary louise parker you know, and it turns <laughs> out she's a pretty big theater actress. And, I, you know, you can tell when someone is theater trained for what you're talking about, this uh, ability to demonstrate emotion and character, both verbally and physically. And often I think movie only actors uh, become a little one dimensional. Anyways, this is not one of those. The acting in this film is, uh, is pretty great. legit. Yeah. Pretty yeah. incredible. 